You're listening to KZOM, Oleander Public Radio. Midget from the Island by H.G. Winter, Part 2. He saw the tilted shape of a rotted tree stump, its roots half-washed away and exposing a narrow crevice between them. Gasping, the nude, foot-high figure tumbled down into it and lay there, trying to hush his labored breathing. He was a mere twenty feet from the trail, and though to him the bush was a jungle, to his pursuer it was only chest high. A towering shadow moved along the trail. The thud of heavy footbeats came more slowly to the listening midget. Hagendorf was searching, puzzled by the vague shadows for where Garth had left the path. Silence fell. Garth's heart was pounding like a trip hammer. He held himself alert, ready, if need be, to struggle up from the moist crevice and dart on further into the bush. He could not see the giant, but could picture his huge, sullen face all too clearly. Still no sound came. Risking all, he gripped the root and hauled himself up slightly. Then he peered around the stump. Hagendorf was standing in the thick of the bush. He was not ten feet away, striving in the gloom to discern the other's telltale tracks. Garth drew his head back, hardly daring to breathe. Shivering, his naked body miserably cold, he waited, pressed down in the soggy earth. His betraying tracks were there. The shadows alone befriended him. The silence was drawn so fine that the faint cheep of a nightbird sounded startlingly loud. But then came thunder that sent the bird winging away in fright, and the night and the forest echoed with the roar of a wrathful, impatient, human voice. You hear me wherever you are, and hear this. I leave you now, but in ten minutes I have you. You little fool, you think you can get free. It is only by minutes you delay me. Snarling a curse, the treacherous giant turned and crashed through the bush and took his huge form, striding back towards the cabin. Garth was thinking of many things as he scrambled back wearily from his refuge to the trail. He was cursing the unwanted publicity which prying reporters had given his work in Detroit, and which had led him to lease the lonely island and build a laboratory in the wilderness. Had it not been for that publicity, he would never have needed an assistant, and the vision of fame would never have come to delude Hagendorf and turn his thoughts towards murder. His position seemed a horrible delirium from which he must presently awake. Naked, dwarfed by each ordinary forest weed, unarmed, and trembling from the wind-sharpened night, he hardly knew which way to turn. His body was blotched with blood and mud, and under it the ragged gashes made by glass and bush stung painfully. He was hungry and stiff and tired and miserable. He remembered Hagendorf's threat of capturing him in ten minutes, and forced a smile to his face. "'Looks kind of bad,' he muttered, using his voice in an attempt to dispel some of the lonely grip of the night. "'But we'll keep moving anyway. He's coming back soon. Let's see.' I'd better make for the stream. It'll be hard for him to follow my tracks through that. And then... Then what? The island was small. He realized he could not stand many hours of exposure. Inevitably. But he turned his mind from the future and its seeming hopelessness, and concentrated on the immediate need, which was to hide himself. 
Forcing the pace, he struck off on a shambling trot down the dim trail and into the deepening, sinister shadows towards the island's lone stream. Obstacles that normally he would not have noticed made his path tortuous. His great weight sank his feet ankle-high in the moist, uneven ground. Time and time again he stumbled over some embedded rock that, potato-sized, was like a boulder to him. Time and time again he fell, and when he rose, his legs were plastered with soggy earth that did not dry, and the damp, fallen leaves and twigs he pitched into clung to his coating of mud. Each broken limb and branch, dropped from the whispering gloom of the trees above, drained the energy from his tiring muscles. Soon he was conscious of a vague numbness creeping over him, a deceptive, drowsy warmth into which he longed to sink, but which he drove back by working his arms and legs as vigorously as he could. On he went with teeth clenched and eyes fixed on the half-seen trail ahead, a fantastic tiny creature hunted like a wild animal by a giant of his own kind. Presently, through the shroud of darkness, traced by ghostly slivers of starlight, came the sound of trickling water. The trail rose, dipped down, and through that hollow crawled the stream, winding from a hidden spring to the encompassing river below. Garth was winded when he came to it. To his eyes it seemed a small river. His legs were so numb they hardly felt the cold bite of the water that lapped around them. Some furry water animal leaped away as Garth trudged upstream, alarmed by the strange midnight visitant and the self-encouraging mutterings of a shrill human voice. He had waded what seemed to him a weary distance, in reality only a few hundred yards, through the winding icy creek, when suddenly he halted and stood stock still. Listening, he heard the ordinary sounds of the wind through fir spires and the slow trickle of water, heard the beating of his own heart. Nothing else. And yet, he took another step. Then he swung quickly around and peered back, senses alert. There was no mistaking the sound that had come again. It was the crunch of heavy feet, thudding at even intervals on damp earth. They were Hagendorf's, and he was armed with light. A long beam of white speared through the tangle of bush and tree trunks far below. It came slanting down from above, prying for the story recorded by miniature footprints in the ground. By its distance from him, Garth could tell Hagendorf had come to where his trail led into the stream. The ray held steady for minutes. Again it prowled nervously around, hunting for telltale signs, sweeping in widening circles. Then it was punctuated by the crunch of a boot. The giant was following upstream. With the flashlight, he might even be able to trace the prince in the bed of the creek. Stooping, Garth crept ahead as silently as he could, though the stir of water at his feet seemed terribly loud. There were keen ears behind, craned for sounds like that. He knew he would have to hide again, quickly, and at that moment he saw a place. A cleft in the bank to his right held a small hole, dimly limbed by a wisp of starlight. On hands and feet the midget scrambled cat-like to it. It slanted down and inwards, only inches wide, so that the earth was close to his body when he slid, feet first, inside. But it was warm and dry, for it was shielded by a ledge from rain, and with the warmth the hunted mannequin's spirits rose somewhat. 
the ray of light which he could see sweeping back and forth downstream was still following slowly as if hagendorff were having trouble making out the water-covered trail garth breathed easier cuddled down and then for some unaccountable reason he felt uneasy he had not noticed it at first but now his nostrils were filled with a queer musky odor that electrified his nerves and tensed his muscles he felt the short hairs of his neck rise felt his lips tighten and draw back over clenched teeth some long-buried instinct was warning him of danger and suddenly he sprang from the hole and swung around from it a killer came sneaking out its bared fangs thirsty for his life-blood arching and swaying its lithe-muscled body it slid forward in its graceful savage way a weasel the deadliest pound-for-pound -pound killer that prowls the forest it was as long as the naked human who faced it was tall unwittingly he had chosen its hole as a refuge retreat would have been impossible but garth for some reason did not even think of it a strange new sensation poured through his tense body a sensation akin to fierce joy gone was his tiredness his teeth too were bared matching the wicked fangs before him two primal creatures they were tooth to tooth and claw to claw the man is naked and intoxicated with the blood-lust as the ten pounds of bone and sinew that now darted suddenly for his throat with the lightning quickness that had come to him with small size garth stepped aside and as the weasel's head streaked by he called on man's distinctive weapon and put every ounce of his weight behind a right arm swing that landed square on a cold black nose and doubled the weasel back in mid-air stunned it writhed for a second on the slippery bank and then again it was up mad with pain now and swaying slightly as it gathered for a second leap against the creature that fought so strangely but in the momentary respite garth had reasoned out his best chance he did not try to fight off the second dart with his fists but went boldly in ducking through the needle claws with head lowered his tiny hands streaked in on the furry throat he found it and his fingers thumbed into the windpipe but not before the weasel smelled the blood its claws had drawn and went utterly berserk for a moment there was a wild flurry of furry tearing legs and a blood-streaked white body between them trying desperately to evade their slicing strokes they pitched down the bank together animal and man struggling silently to the death and when they jarred to a stop in the water below garth's strategy was achieved he was uppermost his grip was steel around the throbbing throat and the hundred and eighty pound weight of his body was holding the legs powerless not an inch from his face the weasel's fangs clashed frantically together garth maintained his clutch squeezing with every bit of his mighty strength the animal shuddered then writhed in the death convulsions at last lay still panting his mind a welter of primate emotions roused by the kill the man shook it a last time jumped to his feet and glared around to see the beam of a flashlight only a dozen yards away his more deadly foe the human foe was upon him perhaps the sounds of the fight had reached his ears garth lost not a moment quickly he slung the weasel's body back into the hole and jammed himself down after it Hagendorf approached slowly, mumbling and cursing to himself in sullen ill-humor.
Things were not going as he had expected them to. The white ray scoured the banks of the stream, searching doggedly. Nearer he came, and with each step the watching midget's rapid breathing grew tighter. The towering body was more than shadow now. Another ten feet and the flashlight would find the marks of the fight. But the titan's patience gave out. Closer than he had yet been to his quarry, he paused, and again the thunder of his voice broke the night's hush. Bah! This is foolish. In daylight I find him certainly. I have waited long. I could wait a little more. I need sleep. Tomorrow it will be different. He swung away from the stream, and in a few minutes the rip and crash of his progress through the bush had died. In the silence, Garth Howard considered his situation. He faced it squarely, as was his custom. He did not brood over the treachery of his assistant, or of how unfairly and suddenly it had plunged him into peril and robbed him of his normal body. He accepted his position and searched for possible angles of escape. There were not many hours left in which to make a decisive move. The island was small, and as Hagendorf had said, discovery would be inevitable in daytime. Garth thought of the machine and of the giant sleeping. A desperate plan came to him, and his jaws set decisively. I'll do it, he exclaimed aloud. The lever which controlled both increase and decrease could be worked from inside the chamber, if he rigged up a system of turning it with a wire or rope. If he pulled it to the increase only part way, he would, he knew, have sufficient power over his muscles to pull it back off, or slide again from the chamber as he had done before. Whether or not he could do this depended on Hagendorf's being asleep. Possibly he could be locked in the living room, if he were there, or tied. The increase, even at half speed, would only take about forty seconds. Once back to his size, there would be a fight without odds, Garth thought grimly. It was a big risk, and there was probably only a small chance of succeeding, but it meant getting back to six feet, back to normal world, back to equal terms. That was the magnet which drew him presently toward the cabin laboratory. He went slowly to allow Hagendorf plenty of time to fall soundly asleep. The giant, as he had said, needed sleep, needed it badly. For like Garth Howard, he had done without it for forty-eight hours, under the excitement of imminent success in their work. Garth considered that his move would be totally unexpected, being made right into the other's territory. There was a chance. And so, cold and weariness banished by thoughts of the goal ahead, he prowled back along the trail like any small creature of the forest. It was half an hour later when he came in sight of the cabin. His heart drummed excitedly as he stood in the shadows, surveying it. He wondered if Hagendorf was still awake, if he was perhaps waiting for him. Certainly he did not seem to be. The cabin was dark and silent, and the only door was tightly closed. Still, it might be wiser to retreat while still free. No, by heaven, Garth Howard exclaimed in his thoughts. I'm going through with it. Stooping slightly, he left the shadows and ran boldly into the starlight. He half expected to hear a scuffle of feet and see the giant come leaping out at him, but nothing broke the silence. He made his careful way along the side of the cabin to the place where a trough for waste liquids led through a small hole at the level of the floor, and with great care 
wormed through. As he started to cautiously reconnoiter, he was suddenly arrested in his tracks. He had caught the sound of deep, rhythmic breathing. Hagendorf was asleep, not in the adjoining living room, but in the laboratory. For a moment, Garth did not know what to do. Caution urged him to retreat, but that would not get him back to his size. On tiptoe, he explored around. The boards squeaked beneath his great weight, but the nearby breathing beyond continued in regular rhythm. His eyes were toned to the darkness of the laboratory. He saw the chamber of his atom-compacting machine, its outer sides ghostly in the faint reflected starlight, and stared at it with a pang of fierce longing. So near it was, so very near. Holding the stolen size of his body, holding all that was vital to him, holding life itself, it rested there silently, within reach of a few steps and a quick climb up of one of the table legs. So he thought, his brain whirling with mingled emotions, his tiny body shivering and aching with cold and its many hurts. The machine was near, but a barrier blocked the way. Hagendorf's bulk lay outstretched on a side table, black in the shadows, and from him came the level of breathing of a sound sleeper, climaxed now and again by a rumbling snore. He was taking no chances. His presence there seemed to destroy any hope of the midget's regaining normal size. But Garth was desperate, and for a minute or so he considered. Forty seconds the increase would take at half speed. It might be that long before the giant would awaken thoroughly and see what was happening. He, Garth, might start the process, and when he saw the huge figure stirring and waking from the noise of the dynamo, switch off the ray and get out. No matter how short a time it took Hagendorf to throw off the fogginess of his sleep, he would be somewhat increased in size, and the odds of combat would not be so great. It was a terrible risk. Did he dare take it? He thought of the forest, of the raw night, of what was threatened in the morning. Yes. Silently, the mannequin clasped the nearest table leg, shimmied up and hauled himself over the top. As he got there, his heart leaped. A sharp thumping had come from behind. He dropped to his knees and glanced around, but he immediately rose again, reassured. It was only the rabbits in their cage, disturbed by the strange figure on the table. He thanked God that they and his tarantulas and other insects could make no alarming noises. Garth found a long strand of wire. The panel's control lever swung to the left, controlled increase. To the right, decrease. Garth's plan was to wind the middle of the wire around it, relay each end around the two supporting posts of the switchboard, and thus have both ends of the wire in his hands when he stood inside the chamber. One end of the wire would enable him to pull the lever over for increase, and the other to pull it back to neutral when the increase was completed, or when Hagendorf arose. Quickly he started to arrange the wire, then suddenly his hands dropped, and he stared, dismayed, at the control panel. The power switch had been removed. It was Hagendorf's work, of course. He had guarded every angle. Without that switch, the mechanism was lifeless, and literally powerless. It worked on a delicately adjusted and enclosed rheostat. There was nothing that could be substituted for it. 
It would take hours to improvise one in the heart of the apparatus. The switch, Garth reflected bitterly, was probably concealed somewhere about the giant's body. He considered the possibility of tying him. He knew where there was a coil of light, pliable wire on the floor. He might be able to loop it over the giant's hands and legs while he slept, tie him securely, and then go through his pockets for the switch. Another hazard, but there was nothing else to do. Garth lowered himself over the table's edge and slid quietly down the leg. He glanced at the sleeping man, then over across the room to where, beneath another table, the wire was, and his nerves jumped at what he saw there. From the darkness, under the table, two spots of greenish fire, close to the floor, held steadily on him. As he stared, they vanished to reappear more to the right. With the movement, he glimpsed the outline of a lithe, crouching animal, and he knew it to be the cat that he and Hagendorf had experimented on earlier that night. It was stalking him in the deliberate manner of its kind. It came edging around so as to leap on him from the side. He knew that he represented fair prey to it, that if he tried to run, it would pounce on him from behind. Wearily he tensed his miniature body, standing poised on the balls of his feet and never dropping his eyes for a moment. He could not repress a grim smile at the ludicrousness of being attacked by an ordinary house-cat, even though it was tiger-sized to him. Though his victory over the weasel, a far deadlier fighter, made him confident he could dispatch it, there was another aspect to the approaching struggle. It would have to be fought in silence. Not four feet away, Hagendorf slept. There lay the overwhelming danger. Even as these things flashed through his brain, the cat steadily inched nearer on its padded paws. Ghostly starlight framed it now. Garth could see the eager, quivering muscles, the long tail, flat behind, twitching slightly the rigid, unstirring head, and the slowly contracting paws. The terrible suspense of its stalking scraped his nerves. There would be a long pause, then an almost imperceptible hunching forward, with the tail ever twitching. Then the same thing again and over again. It became unbearable. Garth deliberately invited the attack. He pretended to turn and run, his back towards it. At once he sensed its tensing body, its bunching muscles. Then he knew it had sprung. Whirling, he had a fleeting impression of a supple body in midair, of bristling claws and bared needle-point fangs. But he was ready. The weasel had taught him his best weapon, the great weight of his body. He streaked in beneath the widespread paws, shot his hands into the fur of the throat, and threw himself against the shock of the animal's suddenly arrested sleep. There was no standing his weight. Over the cat went, its back thudding into the floor, its claws held powerless by the hundred and eighty pounds of hard flesh that straddled it. The fall had made little noise, but as Garth tightened the grip of his fingers and bored inward, a dull, steady thumping began to sound. It was the cat's tail pounding on the floor. Desperately, he tried to hook a leg over it, but he could not reach far enough. It beat like a tom-tom. From above there came the sound of a huge frame stirring and the rumble of a sleepy grunt. In a moment the tight hand would be thoroughly awake. 
By the drumming tail alone, Garth realized his chance of regaining full size was sent glimmering. There was nothing but retreat now, and a hasty one if he valued his life. Another noise came from the waking Hagendorf. He was sitting up, staring around. Garth jumped to his feet, threw the cat's twitching body beneath the table, and dodged at full speed for the hole whereby he had entered. Like a mouse he wriggled through, leaped to the ground, scrambled up and made for the forest. He ran with all the speed at his command, and was almost surprised when he reached the black fringe of the forest in safety. In the protecting gloom he dared to pause and look back. Hagendorf was not pursuing him. From the sound he was merely boarding shut the drain hole, to prevent another entrance in that way. Then afterwards the windows. Garth was puzzled. I don't understand it, he said aloud. Why is he so sure he can get me in the morning? Isn't he afraid I'll leave the island? Why, I've got to try to get away now. It could be death to be here after the dawn. He stood there, making his plans. They had a rowboat below, powered with an outboard motor. Even in his present size, he might possibly run it, if he could get it started. He would strike down river for Detroit, and when the gas gave out, the current would carry him on. Some riverboat might pick him up and carry him to friends in the city. His grotesquely dwarfed body would prove his story, and they would bring him back and end Hagendorf's mad dream of fame and help him to regain his normal size. He could superintend the construction of another machine if the present one was wrecked. When he started down the trail to the river, he seemed to be walking through a haze. He felt curiously light-headed, and his body was completely numb. The long exposure was telling on him, and there was much more of it to come. He wondered if he could hold out until he reached the mainland. But his mind cleared of the days the cold and near exhaustion had brought it to. When at last he came to the beach and realized that again Hagendorf had anticipated him, the rowboat was gone. No wonder the giant could afford to wait until daylight. End of section 7